0: Hey everyone, Welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of Neonewstoday.com. I’m your host, Dylan Grabowski. In this episode of the Smart Economy Podcast, I chat with Len Sir, the investment lead at MexC’s, M Ventures and Labs. MexC is a custodial exchange founded in 2018 that boasts more than 7 million users worldwide and supports more than 1,600 cryptocurrencies. And Ventures and Labs is a comprehensive fund committed to empowering innovations in the cryptocurrency field, via strategic investment, mergers and acquisitions, funds of funds, and project incubation. In this conversation, Len and I talk about his background in equity, venture investment, and entrance into the blockchain space, the vast roles that a VC plays in the incubation of ideas and projects, the focus areas of M-Ventures and Labs, strategies for reviewing lots and lots of projects, his insights into Neo's recent decoding Web3 University tour, and much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, that nothing should be taken as financial advice, and that the host or guests may hold tokens discussed in any given episode. With that said... I really enjoyed chatting with Len, and I hope you enjoy the conversation too. Hey, guys. Welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast. Today, we are joined by Len Sir, the investment lead at MEXC's M-Venture and Labs. How are you doing today, Len?
1: I'm doing good. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing awesome. We just uh, made it past last week. And for... Reference and context for people who are listening to this episode in the future, uh, we're one week post the FTX collapse. So before we kind of get into the meat of the conversation today, I just wanted to hear from your perspective, uh, how did that whole fiasco impact what's going on with you and in your world? And what are just some insights you might have?
1: Personally, (laughs) I am fortunately not affected. By the incident. But as for the industry, it came as a, quite a bit of a shock, and many of my friends took direct, many of my friends, um, many of the investment institutions, many of the fund managers, many of the projects who have funds on FTX received the direct blows. I think that's, uh, pretty, uh, that's quite a, a clear picture. And uh, although mishandling of funds and all of that is uh, definitely no no as a result, I do think that uh, this incident does help piercing the bubbles, um, accelerating the deleveraging at this downturn of the market for the whole industry, and uh, I think in the longer run for institutions who've made mistakes to expose the mistakes, that would be a good thing. One, does push for the overall industry to strive for more transparency, and two, Yes, we're in the bear market. We have been in this deleveraging effort, and that does push that progress a little bit more forward so that with less inflation, with less inflated asset prices, everyone, every participant in the industry could uh, get a chance actually to take a breather. Probably not for those who still have fun stuck at yeah. <laughs> a uh, black hole But overall, uh, it does give us the chance to rethink uh, what mistakes we've encountered, what are the technical constraints that we have uh, seen, both in centralized and decentralized web services, and how can we build on top of what we already have? Overall, it's an iteration, trial, find mistakes, maybe some bubbles, bursts, and we do that again. We rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat.
0: Awesome. Thanks for sharing your insights. MEXC is a large-scale custodial exchange. So it's nice to hear just kind of what is going on under the hood and like what you guys are thinking about as this kind of unfolds. So to introduce you to the listeners of the Smart Economy podcast, can you tell us who you are, what you do, and what your path was into becoming the investment lead at M Ventures and Labs?
1: Started out in uh equity venture investment way back when, um, mostly focused on fintech technologies. And I think starting in 2015, 2016, some projects, some founders were starting to say, hey, we're going to use blockchain technology as the basis, or we're using the decentralized ledger technology as the basis of our services. And I was like, hey, what this is, go a little bit deeper and say, hey, this is the revolution, and I turned full crypto in 2017, focused still on the primary market venture investments, but also did uh, project incubation, product development, and also ran for a very short period of time a secondary market trading fund, a prop fund. A <laughs> very small scale was way too tiresome and decided to focus on the investment part, Later, I joined the MEXC in the spring of 2022 because I wanted to sort of attach myself to a larger organization. And the custodial exchanges is still a category of major players in the crypto industry. And uh, I think this is where I can affect some positive change because through investment, I mean, unlike individual GPLP-structured funds, uh, we are the strategic investment arm for a custodial exchange. So through investment, what we hope to do is not only participate in and foster development for fast-growing, emerging, new, revolutionary products, projects, and people, but also we invest for the strategic development of our own company or of our own base, a core business as well. So that's how we got here, and that's where we are. MXE uh, started out in 2018, grew pretty fast uh, in the last downturn of the market. Um, right now, we're a team of approximately 1,000 people with eight-digit uh, user base across 170 regions in the globe. And so we do pride ourselves for offering a cohort of services for over 900 crypto assets. I think that's one of the most comprehensive selection amongst the market.
0: Yeah. And you did mention that there is a role for custodial exchanges moving forward. There's a high learning curve when it comes to maintaining your own keys and protecting your assets. So right now, we're probably in the wake of people maybe being scared of custodial exchanges. So how do you kind of make folks feel... Safer or a little bit better about custodial exchanges? Because right now in the news cycle, the whole thing is get your keys off of exchanges and, and hold on to your own assets. What are maybe some of the counterpoints to the current trend and narrative?
1: I'm in full support uh, for people who want to take their assets out of any kind of custody service uh, into their own decentralized wallet, just for a peace of mind. I'm in full support of that that's what blockchain is for. If you want to make absolutely sure that you're the only one who can access your assets, then you are able to do that because we have this technology. But uh, in terms of the customer relations between the users and uh, centralized exchanges, I think it's like every other business. It's like every business where, I mean, technology can guarantee the safety of your uh, assets, but whoever is running the protocol, whoever is running a service, either decentralized or centralized, custodial or non-custodial, it's a relationship of trust. You see some actors behaving in a bad way. You do wonder, other actors in the same category, do they do the same? And now the burden of proof is resting on the shoulders of centralized exchanges. And we have seen in the past week that a bunch of us are uh, providing proof of reserve, are claiming that, yes, we're 100%. And if you do want to test, out, test that out, yeah, make your withdrawals. And if you do feel safe, then yeah, deposit your your, uh, assets back into the platform and continue using the services we're providing. And that's basically it. But overall, we do need, as an industry, a little bit of more self-regulation and a little bit of uh, self-pumped transparency that uh, I think all of the custodial services, not including, but not uh, limited to, centralized exchanges, that we should, by ourselves, provide some kind of transparency so that our our users can have a peace of mind and, in return, kind of pushing us as a custodial service more connected to the decentralized tech stack.
0: Yeah, that's uh, really refreshing to hear, to just say, hey, if you want to take your assets off, go for it. We're backed one-to-one. Really nice to hear a, a representative of a custodial exchange say that. So you don't necessarily work at MEXC, the exchange. You're part of the ventures and labs branch. Yes. So can you just share a little bit of the differences between the two?
1: It's under the same hood. And that's under the umbrella of uh, MEXC, the exchange. I'm not on the exchange operation side. I'm on the investment and incubation side. The ventures part handles investments. And incubation part handles... There are multiple words for what we do. There are multiple sayings to describe what we do, but mostly what we do is provide any kind of services to help projects to grow from I don't want to call it necessarily zero to one, maybe 0.2 to at least point seven. I'm, I'm not sure if I make sense, but uh, yeah, you're nodding, so you, you get you get what I mean. And that includes project positioning, liquidity release strategy, PR and marketing strategies and uh, fundraise, collaboration, so on and so forth. Basically, whatever the project needs to hit the target, hit, a map, hit the next milestone, and that's what I provide. And the venture side handles the investment purely. We're on the same hood, integrated team, and uh, we're very open to collaborations with other institutions, either Venture Studio or a group of developers or other uh, investment institutions or other exchanges. We're very open to that.
0: Awesome. So, how long has M Ventures and Labs been around? It seems like the entity Ventures and Labs is relatively new. Beforehand, there was an M Labs. So, what was M Labs and what has the merge kind of done for that entity?
1: Okay. I'm glad you asked that. That's actually on us. When Mexi, the organization, the exchange started back in 2018, Very shortly after we started making investment, we started making a prime American investment, we started helping projects to grow. But uh, that's the on us part. We have not been very vocal about our involvement. We just kept our head down, helped the projects, cut the checks, and that was it. (laughs) And then we realized that's got to change. We want to put the words out. We want to let people know that uh, we are in play. We have been in play and we have been helping projects. And so uh, we want to get the words out so that people, projects, teams, students, even who want to learn about us, who want to get involved, can have an, an additional uh, resource that is us. Hey, come chat with us. Come ask us for uh, investment come ask us for network introductions come ask us but almost anything so long as this is for the overall development of the crypto and blockchain industry. So, read a little branding, put the words out, have a little party, and say, "Hey guys, we've been here. Uh, we are M or M Labs, and we hope that's what you guys call us from now on. And uh, here's what we've been doing, and we're we'll continue doing so." Even during the downturn of the market, even after a a, a bunch of uh, collapses of uh, prominent uh, institutions or projects, or just the general market, we still believe in the long-term development of the industry as a whole, and we've been continuing investments, we've been continuing our incubations, we've been continuing our listing practices on the exchange operations operation side, and... Uh, if you're still in the game if you still believe this if you have an idea come chat with us that. that's basically the message
0: cool so the the merge was really just to kind of put the venture side at the forefront you guys were there the entire time but now the new name just kind of says this is who we are and what we've been doing so what are some examples of projects that ventures and labs has invested in incubated Um, I know you probably have a bunch of babies you're really proud of, so would you like to talk a little bit about some of them?
1: Personally, I've only joined since this spring, and many of the projects I'm involved in are still underway, so I really cannot talk about that in a very clear, (laughs) plain language. But in the past, we've uh, supported early investors for quite a few L1s, quite a few middleware projects, and a bunch of application end projects. We've also served as validators or data providers for Oracles, for L1s, and things like that.
0: Cool. I got you.
1: Do you want me to name do you want me to name them? Or?
0: Yeah. If you if you don't feel comfortable or confident in naming them, then we don't have to dox anyone right now. I'm sure in due time, we'll hear more about Mexi's uh, amazing projects that they've incubated. Um, So I noticed in my research that the M-Ventures and M-Labs team formed recently, officially, but you guys have been there for quite some time. There are three primary focus areas that the team is focusing on. Web3, the new public chain ecosystem and infrastructure. So can you just share a little bit of insight into how the team chose these three core areas to focus on?
1: As the investment arm for a centralized exchange, our thesis is a little bit different from the purely GPLB's venture funds. First of all, we are chain agnostic. We're stage agnostic. We are vertical agnostic. Okay, that does not put us in a good light. That sounds like we're doing just trying to do everything, but uh, that is actually what we're trying to do good. We don't turn down things. Like, oh, if you're making a DID project, then no, 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 no. If you're making an L1, then say, yes, yes, yes. That's not who we are. If you're making a DID project, tell us how. Tell us how you're going to do it. Tell us why you're doing it. So we come in. We're pitching our thoughts on that. We're pitching our research on that and say, hey, this might be with a little tweak, this might be a very good uh, application or, or very good service to the rest of the applications. Then, yeah, we can go ahead on that. So there's that. And we do have different uh, people principles or, or focus guys on different areas and the uh, ones the infrastructures and with your application stack that, that you just mentioned are some of the interest areas that our team feel comfortable one investment investing in and two feel confident for an eminent uh, Scaling up, infrastructure-wise, of course, that's the uh, technical basis for the whole industry. And uh, every time we go through April and the bear market, we see boomings of applications, which in turn tells us, "Hey, we are yes very limited by the technical basis, and we do need to make some upgrades to that area." And uh, infrastructure building is a constant theme. I understand that uh, almost every investment institutions in this industry is focusing on that part and on the application. And I think that's also kind of a natural, a given concept where we were talking about the blockchain, the decentralized part of any kind of uh, product or project in this industry. It's still, they're all still web-based or services and the services and the application and, should be the ones capturing the most value because they are the ones creating most values for the user base. So we're focusing on that part as well. Because what good does it do if we have pages and pages and scrolls and scrolls of code of the product, and no one is able to use it via a simplified UI, but only for ones who can code and re-code and type code can interact with the with a tech stack that's. Just not how how it works, right? Ultimately, what well, we are hoping for the blockchain as a te- category of technologies and the blockchain as an industry, we're hoping for these two to do is to build a stack from technical infrastructure to business infrastructures, the key point, the cornerstones of the, each of the verticals applications and to the end user application, the whole stack, where you uh, want a balanced, uh, fully developed stack to provide services to the uh, individual users, then that's, I think that's the ultimate goal for all of us in this industry. We also do periodic reviews of our investment thesis, because unlike Unlike other VCs who have fun lives to or about, we act a little bit differently. We appropriate a percentage of our revenues as the principal for our investments. So we actually are able to take the risks in the longer terms. Risks in the longer terms. We allow, and we actually, me personally, I do actually encourage projects to pivot if and when they see an opportunity. And see, I'm, I'm all about the iteration part, like, Here's the check. Here's the check. Here are the checks from a bunch of other investors. And here's what you propose to do. We've uh, reviewed it. You guys have understood it. You guys proposed it. Let's try it out. If it works to a certain degree, let's fix all the bugs. If it doesn't work, what went wrong? Let's figure that part out.
0: Cool. It's nice to hear that you're supportive of the pivot because sometimes we can go into a project or an idea... And then after six months, eight months, 10 months, whatever, we realize, oh, we thought that it was this, but we can pivot to provide a better service based off of what we're really trying to work on. You mentioned earlier that you can't really talk about specific projects that you guys are investing in and incubating right now. So maybe this question might help get to the core of what I was wondering a little bit about. What are sort of the infrastructures that are Interesting to uh, Mexi's M Labs and Ventures branch. Are you guys interested in Oracles right now? Is it decentralized networks generally, bridges? What are kind of like the trending kind of types of infrastructure?
1: We are focusing on let's take infrastructure. The word infrastructure, for instance, we're focusing on two categories or or two aspects of the infrastructure per se. One is in the technical sense. And one is in the business process sense. Technical sense, it's uh, pretty straightforward. I mean, people categorize L1s, uh, rollups, uh, ZKs, all of those, and, and bridges and oracles, all of those into the, the tech infrastructure category. Right? You can agree or disagree, but yes, that's one thing we're focusing on. And me personally, I think the uh, skill anything to do with scalability is a key of this round iteration or development or upgrades, so to speak. I don't want to call them patches because that sounds cheap, but it's essentially what they are. We have an ex- the, the existing skeleton of a network that runs pretty smoothly, but it's pretty expensive and slow. And if you see what happened in the past two to three, uh, two years, let's not go to that far. We can see that the network is congested, Basically, means the servers are not supporting the end user use case. So, how can we make that the basis of the service more reliable, more scalable, have more bandwidth without compromising the security part? So, that's the text part. So, the scalability part, any L2, any L2, and kind of roll up, that's what we're focusing on. And another aspect of the in- infrastructure is what I call, we can call key business or it can call business infrastructure. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, the projects or the applications or the services within a particular vertical that functions as the bedrock for anything that happens within that vertical. Let's take uh, DeFi, for, for, for instance. DeFi, the, the core of the DeFi is the FI part, right? It's finance, parentheses, industry, parentheses back, in a decentralized fashion. And the core functionalities or services that uh, institutions and individual investors need is one, exchange for the token swaps, two, oracles, so that any kind of uh, trading activities have some kind of price feeder, three, lending. We have seen uh, very many collateralized loan protocols. We haven't really seen any prominent, let's say, fixed rate. Lending products, which, if you compare that, compare the DeFi sphere to the traditional finance sphere. The fixed rate products is one of the key things that we're missing. Yes, there are products, there are protocols for fixed rate lending. To my knowledge, none of them have really taken off, and most of them rely on the AMM models for the liquidity. And uh, if you look at the numbers, there is significant market inefficiency. If there are other projects or are Someone coming up with a brilliant idea, say, "Hey, here's how we do it in a decentralized way." I think that's going to be, for lack of a better words, huge.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting the way you break down the types of services that go into DeFi and then kind of the focus areas for how to look into investing or incubating into those teams and projects. When we were on tour, we recently did the Decoding Web Three tour, and, and you participated in panels on a lot of the West Coast universities and. Um, I felt like I lobbed you a, a really fastball question out of nowhere, like, what is Web3? Um, and you did a great job of answering it. So I, I hope I didn't put you too much on the spot then, but your answer really got a lot of wheels turning for me because it was basically the thesis of Web3 is the ability for us to own our own data and to take that with us wherever we want. Now, what are some of the projects that come to your plate at Maxi? What are some of the Web3 projects that folks are presenting to you guys and asking for investment and incubation in? And is it something as simple as just NFTs or just DeFi? Or are there additional focuses in the Web3 space that you guys are looking into? Are
1: you asking about uh, the projects that come to us or the ones that uh, we really like to focus on?
0: That's a great question in and of itself. What are the Web3 projects coming to you? What's the general trend with them? Because I know you can't mention specific projects. So what's the general trend of Web3 projects coming to you? And what do you and your team think should be the next wave of investment into Web3?
1: We're being asked by five projects starting way back when, 2019-ish. And then more DeFi protocols in twenty twenty two in twenty twenty. Then there were in the Web three sense, the broader Web three sense. We had uh, game fair projects. We had NFT projects. We had metaverse creations. And then we had music NFTs. We had more gaming projects. Because we're talking about, the, uh, we're talking in the Web3 application side of things, right? So, so we're not, I'm not counting the L1s, L2s, roll-ups, ZKs, and whatnot. Yeah, those were the sequence of uh, concentration of projects that uh, were, were coming in. And uh, it was, I would say, a very logical flow of things where when the tech stack, the basics, the basics of the tech stack is ready, then the uh, first batch of applications got to be something to do with the asset exchanges, right? And then for a better uh, user experience, for better uh, user acquisition processes, the GameFi projects, the X to earn, so to speak, projects um, have gained traction. And naturally, uh, founders who've considered those types of projects were trying to say, hey, this is taken off, let's get in. That's basically it. For us, we welcome any and all experiments to apply decentralized technology to whatever the end web services that many of us are thinking or using, probably using on a daily basis, but with the caveat of asking us the hard questions, why blockchain do you have to do that in a decentralized way? If so, then let's work out the strategy to make that work. If No, then let's rethink that.
0: How many projects on maybe like a weekly or a monthly basis are being put on your plate to evaluate? I would have to imagine you have to review a ton of different types of projects. So what's like the the flow for the, the number of projects on average that fall onto your plate like on a monthly basis? And what's your strategy for kind of going through all of them and keeping your finger on the pulse? Because there's so much that goes into Web3 just based off the projects you, you listed off alone. You kind of have to be an expert in a lot of different areas. So what's that like? How many projects are coming onto your plate? And how do you manage digging through and, and really like brocking what they represent?
1: okay uh, volume wise I would say on a monthly basis we uh, as a team review 20 to 120 cases so depending on I mean there are sometimes there are huge influxes of projects at, uh, raising funds and sometimes the number lower uh, you get the point but uh, yeah that's about the volume we've been experiencing on uh, your second question I do make a point trying to avoid becoming a jack of all trades an expert of none I do not claim to be an expert in everything like I said before each of us and and ventures have a interest in the focus area and uh, if we run across a project that we are not so familiar with for the vertical for the project for the problems in that specific area of web services then Yes, we have uh, our teammates, our colleagues to talk to, to consult with, and uh, we do have our own tech advisors, we have our own tech teams that we can consult with, and we do build our network of investors, developers, users, and founders. We're in constant conversation to understand why whatever proposal that was came into being, what the problems they're trying to solve, and is that proposal, is the solution proposed Logically sound, technically feasible, right? And um, it is kind of hard to keep tabs on almost everything. Our friend Tyler was saying that he just doesn't go uh, crypto Twitter because it, the, the sheer amount of information is going to overwhelm almost everyone. But uh, what I do is that uh, a key source of learning. Yes, obviously everyone's a uh, key learning, and a key source for my learning comes from the founders I meet. Uh, they're the ones actually proposing a solution to a specific set of problems and uh, us would be in the perfect position to ask oh, what do you think the problem is? Why do you think that is? And how do you propose to solve them? Do we see logical errors in your proposal? Do we see anything else that uh, bars you from implementing that solution? And you do get to meet very many smart people who say, everybody thinks this, but no, I've been doing this for a long time. I know exactly what the problem is. And I think that blockchain technology or whatever we're proposing is going to solve this problem. Uh, for the first two points, yes, I've been, I've been doing this for a long time. I, I know what the problem is. Yes. We, I think almost everyone rely on the founders and to say that, yes, we do our due diligence and we do our verifications. Uh, we have our own research, but yeah, if you're saying the problem is, and we see that too, good. Uh, the next step is usually where most of us, including uh, I'm talking founders and investors all together. Uh, that's where the next step would be most of where most of us have problems with is that the statement of, I think blockchain technology is going to solve this problem. To so that statement, the answer is usually yes and no. Yes, the blockchain technology can potentially reduce the risk of single-point failure, something, something, something in the proposal they are making, in the problems that you have, that you identify, but does it have to be that? Because, as we all probably know, uh, blockchain technology is still in its infancy, and if you're trying to use that limited tech power to solve a big problem, for lack of better words, then we do have quite a long road ahead to make a decentralized-based technology able to service the problem that you identified.
0: That's a really interesting way and, and why I'm really happy to have you on the pod because I, I don't get to pick VCs, investment leads brains very often. And so it's really interesting to hear that the way we go about learning about projects is by listening to the founders who they themselves have been in the weeds, identified a problem, and then tell us what they think that solution is. And then you get to jump off from that as a launch point so it's almost as if they present to you what the problem is, and then you get to bring your your insight, expertise, and skill into evaluating the project. Thanks for sharing that.
1: The way I view VC's job is to allocate resources to foster growth. Obviously, if we, other funds, we have LPs. We also have to. We also have a fiduciary responsibilities for LPs, but in the end, what we're doing is allocating resources, currencies, money, and probably other stuff to projects that we think yes. Propose a a a sound solution and can say, "Hey, if this works, it's going to solve the problem for the industry for our many uh, whatever scale, and that could be a positive change." Then that's why we do it. Yes, we do. I mean, we're not going into project and saying, "Hey, I know nothing. Tell me what you know." Right? (laughs) It's not how it works. Yes, we do have our research. We do try to come up with uh, solutions for a specific industry ourselves in the broader sense, and when we encounter founders that uh, think alike, say, hey, okay, here we go. So that's when the magic happens. And that is basically how I think most VCs uh, actively source the type of projects or innovations that they want. It's because, okay, I think that here's the problem. I think the solution for that problem could be in A, B, C, one of the three forms. Let me dive deeper into all of those three and see the market and see the developer community who's making what. And if you see enough projects, you do get an understanding of, okay, here are the three problems that, um, or here are the three loopholes that most runners have fallen into. Here are the common solutions for those so that if you're trying to solve this problem, you encounter this one so that I'm telling you this so you don't have to go into that that end again.
0: That's very cool. You also get to, as a VC, be the purveyor of knowledge where you've probably heard of a few projects like this before, and you can avoid uh, new founders from going into dead ends. So that's that's some really interesting insight. I want to gain some of your perspective on another piece of insight. As I mentioned earlier in the show, we had participated in a bunch of panels on Neo's Decoding Web3 tour. So I believe we were at three or four different universities that we collaborated on a panel together. What was your sort of vibe on the college campuses and how students are thinking about blockchain, crypto, Web three? What were some of your insights from you know the way that students think today?
1: Yes, I, I had the privilege of uh, speaking on panels with you for a couple of events, and I did get to chat with a few students there. Someone we we kept in contact. Um, the, the overall sense I got from the audience, mostly students, uh, was that uh, the curiosity there is immense, right? There's a bunch of curiosity people or these students are very anxious to know what blockchain itself is, what it does, what it means, for uh, in a broader sense, for the web services that we use today as opposed to us as the industry practitioners see what it could be in the next decade or two. And uh, I think the, the the sheer amount of questions that the students have is astonishing. The sense I get is uh, that I think for anyone who's interested in the industry, it's going to be a very steep learning curve. I don't think many of us, especially in the, even in the industry who call themselves OGs, have not been in in this industry for more than ten years because the it, industry itself is not that okay. Yeah, okay, we just hit the mark, but uh, it's not much far, or not much older than that, right? So we're all learning. I like what you said about uh if you start today, you are one day ahead of the guy who's starting next. People who jo- who joined the industry in twenty seventeen had a steep learning curve and still around, uh, still on that curve. And if you're joining today, yes, you have a little bit of catching up to do, but you're in. Not golden, per se, but uh, as long as you're here, it's everybody's job and everybody's responsibility to learn about this. So the curiosity part is uh, what I get, the one point I get from the students. And a second point or feeling I get from the students is that some of them are actively building products or building pro- even protocols, trying to make something of themselves. Solve a problem, become famous, make money for all of the valid reasons, right? Student founders as a group, the feeling I get is that they tend to get very excited on a feature that they're proposing. And they've made most likely an, an MVP for that feature, for that functionality. And it's good. Many of them are very good. But in order for that uh, notion, that idea to burst into a full-blown project, very often it lacks a little meat. Let me rephrase that. A feature innovation does not suffice a full-blown project. Because the way I look at it is that if you're making something new, if you're trying it out, yeah, that's a very good way to get your feet wet. But at some point founders, especially anyone, especially founders, need to start thinking bigger pictures. Not as in, yes, I'm going to solve world hunger and, and build world peace within the next day, but you got to think about where your venture is going. The baby product you make, can it survive if you throw it out into the real world, right? And if it's just a feature, one functionality that's fun and cool Sure, that's great, but do we need to add something to that to make it a complete or or self sufficient kind of machine so that it runs decent in decentralized fashion? Because most likely, you deploy it, people are going to use it as it is. Yes, there are there are opportunities for you to make adjustments to make upgrades, but uh, do you worry about your runway? Do you worry about people finding out that it's not sufficient so they move on to your, the next project? and your product doesn't get enough uh, viewership or user base. And again, I'm not advocating for every founder, for every project to say, yes, we are the all-in-one solution for every problem that you're going to encounter in the world, right? I'm not not advocating that, but it's never a bad idea to think about how does this project fit with the rest of the Lego pieces in the industry, right? Because, yes, we're advocating for for the Lego part, but if you look like, an L-shaped Lego, you're not going to fit on the square hole in, in, in the rest of the Lego stack. If you're a DeFi protocol, chances are your users will rely on the lending practices of other protocols, will rely on the liquidation practices for other from other users. Then the question for you to think about is that how is your project fitting with the rest of the other practices? And by fit, I mean... Is your solution technically feasible? Is the business logic sound? Is your user experience smooth? And if all that checks out, you've got a great storybook, you've got a great storyline, and you're trying to make it happen, chances are you're going to need funding, you're going to need outside help. And that brings us to the next batch of questions. Is your evaluation reasonable for a feature, two functionalities, or a full-blown project, or how you where and how you're connected to to the rest of the decentralized world and uh, for that valuation the the funds you're getting is that enough for you to build what you want to build is that enough for some kind of room of uh, uh, risk management is that enough for you to hire people is that enough for you if you want to pivot is the project going to be able to earn a profit on itself to feed back into the development cycle that 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 comes then comes the second batch of questions. If every question on those two categories check out, then usually there is a good chance for this project to succeed, at least making an in, a meaningful impact to the industry.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating insight into the work of a VC, where you can look at uh, and we and it's amazing that you took that from what students were thinking and then just described the whole thought process where. A founder or a a student founder can be so psyched on this one killer feature that they have, but then you're there to remind them that this is just one piece of the puzzle and you need to have the whole comprehensive picture solved if you even want to get this killer feature out because you need to have so many more ideas figured out. Where's it going to fit in? Who are you going to collaborate with? How are you going to hire? Just forcing the founder to ask all these questions before they're really ready to produce the product at a larger scale. Really, really interesting insight. And something that I'm really curious about is how do the suggestions and questions that you ask founders and and student founders even just in general, how do these change along with the major narrative changes over time? So like in 2017, it was all about the ICOs and maybe we were talking about raising. In 2020, it was all about DeFi. Maybe we were talking about integrating DeFi. In 2021, it was all about NFTs. Maybe we integrate an NFT. So how do these major narrative shifts that happen in our industry over time impact the sort of advice that you give to founders and help them grow their products out?
1: I wouldn't say the um, shifts in, um, what's the word you used? Market trends? Yeah. I, I wouldn't say that the shifts in market trends necessarily have a direct impact on what I tell founders, what I tell students, what I tell developers, whoever's working on a project, right? I don't think that has a direct impact on what I say because I don't think the shifts in market trends, I don't think them as the overall development of the whole industry is... The sh- I call them shifts in the hypes or in market focus. People are focusing on DeFi stuff right now. People are fo- and then the people are focusing uh, on NFT stuff right now. Or hey, metaverse became a thing. Something, something became a thing. That's basically what we're calling market trends are. And say if someone is working in uh, working on De- DeFi project that facilitates asset swaps, chances are, or, or chances are very low for. His project at or her project at an early stage to deal with non fungible assets, illiquid assets in the first two months, right? They're going to focus on what uh, they're going to focus their ability and energy to a specific problem they're going to solve. So I don't think the verticals or categories of market trends or the hype, the focus areas necessarily affect each other. What I usually try to figure out with the founders is that how does your project or product fit into the relevant. Stuff the relevant Lego pieces in your vertical. Yes, down the road there are going to be a chance or two for that part to expand. Like say, if you're running a service that facilitates token swaps, can you swap for NFT? Yes, the code change is not that difficult. But there's the code development. There's also project operation. And if you're running two lines of businesses, you do need two groups of people. Or at least more people for that to happen. That brings us down from the code side on the computer side down to the real world. Say, how do we get people interested? How do we understand their needs? Do the trading behaviors and mentalities of NFT traders differ from uh, fungible token traders? Do spot market users' uh, mentality differ from that of the futures market, or, or people trading options, or people only do hedges? Right. So. Those are the questions I'm trying to get them to answer. And uh, there is, I would say, a longer-term market shift. Let's not go back too early. Um, you were talking about 2017 ICO, and then later on we discovered that there are um, IEOs, there are ideals, there are I something, something, oh, there are a bunch of acronyms, right? Do they really differ so much from each other? Not really. There are all means through which projects, protocols, raise funds and put their public asset, not pub- public as in public access, not public as in ownership, right? public asset to a, a, a completely open pool or pools of liquidity so that people participating in the web service, in your service, in your protocol, have the chance to interact with the assets that you're going to use in order to use the protocol. Now, if you need it, you buy it. If you earn it, you sell it. Uh, and it's, that is one of the core me- or mechanisms or, or rationales behind decentralized economies where say, hey, we're putting, we're integrating the economic aspect into the tech product in the hope or by, by by calculation and with the hope that it becomes self-sufficient, it becomes self-reliant and becomes resilient as a whole, meaning with together with other projects.
0: Awesome. Wrapping up, I want to ask one last question. I am a subscriber to the multi-chain thesis that moving forward, there's going to be a world where multiple chains exist and they serve multiple purposes. It's not just going to be a one-chain wins all. What is your perspective on dino chains, like darling chains from the ICO era? And how do they kind of fulfill a role that's necessary in the blockchain space today? And what does that mean for new chains that are just launching right now or that might be launching in the future?
1: That's a big topic. Uh, Let me try to break it down a little bit. (laughs) Okay. First... um, First way I'm gonna gonna go about this, is that when we call some protocol a dino chain, it means they're old, but is the team still working on stuff that's relevant, that's up to the most recent tech standards, that whether they're doing that is a kind of a big differentiator between, right? Because it could either be just a you're If if you're a dino chain and you did propose some kind of solution, Uh, on the consensus mechanism back in 2017. But right now, you're only a trading product. You're only a target for speculation on on token prices, prices, ebbs and flows. And then you've essentially made yourself a meme coin, so to speak, right? But if you're still building on your full tech stack, if you are rolling out the support system for whoever wants to build on top of your ecosystem, and you're actively trying to build a network so that people can get easier access to build on or to make test runs, to create experiments on the tech infrastructure that you created way back when, then I would say, yeah, go for it. You are doing the industry a big good by providing hopefully cheap, accessible supported environment for decentralized application experience, right? I I, I use the word experiment a lot because I don't think whatever we're doing right now is uh, going to be in the same form 20 years from now. We are in a constant uh, shift and change space. So there's that. what's the second part of the question?
0: You did a great job answering that. My second part of the question was... What role do new blockchain technologies that are emerging today, where do they fit?
1: Yes, I do subscribe to the notion of a multi-chain future. And I view L1s as the Web3 equivalent of IDCs in the Web2 world. These are the text infrastructure nodes and their servers and the miners and whatnot. They serve the environment where smart contracts get Executed, where transactions get verified, right? So those are the IDCs. And in the web tool world, we have a couple of web service giants, to name a few, right? Uh, Ali Cloud, AWS, Google Cloud, so on and so forth. And some companies even run their own private. And I think that could be a, a refreshing analogy to what blockchain sphere is going to be like Let's say 20 years down the line, there's a multi-chain future. And for the newer L1s, one newer gets attention. Newer um, has a more easily managed circulating market cap. Uh, newer is good at proposing new stuff and more, uh, and better at uh, pivoting because they didn't have the so much as some of the technical debt to quote Tyler, technical debt as other L1s might have had. So yes, they're they're easier to get uh, the attention. And uh, that's, I would say, a good thing for business. Business meaning uh, experiments on the applications, the investment part, the uh, speculating part, the arbitrage part, all that. But after the first look, we still need to take a deeper dive into the newly proposed L1s and see out of the trilemma, Which one are you compromising? What are you proposing different from the dino chains you're trying to replace? So to replace, so to speak, replace. Are you just another Solana but with a different name? Are you another Ethereum with another name? Are you another Cosmos with just another name? If so, then we might have a problem. If there's nothing wrong per se with the tech stack uh, from the dino, quote unquote, dino chains then why are you doing the exact same thing but with a different name? Yes, you might be able to gain a different crowd as uh, first adopters, including users, including developers, including uh, PR efforts, including whatever that is on there, right? But if whatever you're doing is essentially the same, then let's imagine five years down the line, are there going to be two L1s that look almost exactly the same survive simultaneously and share the market equally? I don't think so. Some or one or some of them are am going to win out are going to be better at operations, better at their branding management, better at attracting users and developers, hence better at actually building a usable ecosystem. And probably ebbs and FLOW's well, with the micro and macro economic and financial cycles, so that when you're putting your foot down the gas, you are able to go much farther and faster than if you're right stepping, stomping on the gas in a desert with rocks and you're in a low ride car that's going to crash your car. That's gonna, the, the harder you press on the gas, the harder it's going to crash. So coming back to wrap this up, you're asking me what my opinions on the newer L1s. I would say yes, break out the new branding, break out the new ecosystem. That's good for consolidating the now pretty loose uh market interest and market hype and, and focus that energy onto whatever you're building or proposing, would say that's a good start. But then Whoever's in uh, running that protocol, whoever's participating in that ecosystem, need to continue the effort of actual buildable. Rather than this is something new, we're just going to flip it and move on to the next one. That's just a big no no.
0: Awesome insight. I'm very cognizant of your time, so I would love to ask you: What are all the areas that you're excited about in the short term future for Web three? But since we're nearing the end of our, of our allotted time schedule, maybe what's one exciting area that you're looking forward to in seeing this space get built out in the short term?
1: Okay, I'm, I'm quantifying my understanding of short term to two to three quarters. If we're going off of that assumption, and then I think the, <laughs> the major theme for the next two to three quarters is still deleveraging Is still the aftermath of uh, 2022 incidents and events. But if we look at a slightly longer term, going to mid range outlook, and I quantify that to two to three years, then I would say I think there are going to be promises made on the infrastructure part regarding scalability and security. Security meaning zero knowledge proof, security meaning verifiable asset reserve, or more user-friendly liquidation uh, mechanisms and whatnot. So those, scalability and security. I think that's uh, what's really needed in the short to midterm.
0: Awesome. Len, thank you so much for coming to talk on the Smart Economy podcast. When we were on tour together, I couldn't wait to get you on the other end of the mic. And it was an amazing conversation we just had. So if there's a project that wants to talk to you on behalf of Mexi's and Ventures and Labs, where can they reach out? And if there's just somebody who listened and wants to follow along with what you're doing, how can they keep in contact with you?
1: If you want to talk to anyone, including our Venture Arm uh, at Mexi, find anyone, anywhere who is an actual part of Mexi team, they will make the internal referrals and and they're very warm-hearted in doing that, all of us are, and uh, you guys can follow me, my Twitter at uh, well, did you post that later on, or do I have to say it
0: because your twitter's <laughs> a bunch of numbers, isn't it?
1: right? a bunch of uh, uh, there's a name in the numbers uh, it's uh, it's l e n s i r one three five seven nine the odd numbers, they are the odd integers.
0: We'll link your Twitter handle to the show notes and to the tweet we release. but uh, we've gone well over an hour. Thank you, Len, for coming to join the podcast. It was phenomenal to catch up with you. It was great to be on tour with you. And I can't wait to see you again in the future.
1: Thanks for having me. And uh, thank you for your time. It was a delightful conversation. And uh, I wish we can continue this.
0: Awesome. Cheers. Cheers. Well, what did you think of that conversation? In light of recent events with the collapse of FTX... It was really refreshing to hear Len acknowledge that people might want to take their digital assets off centralized exchanges and that he welcomed them to do so, stating that yes, customer assets on Mexi are indeed backed one-to-one. It was also really interesting to learn about the thought processes of a VC and the role that they play in the development of the blockchain industry. And it was just nice to hear Len's take on the role that older blockchain technologies have in the broader cryptocurrency space, especially if those teams have continued to build and iterate on the blockchain platform over the years. On that note, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support the show, please keep NEO News Today in mind when voting for your NEO Council representative as part of Neo's governance process. We appreciate you and look forward to catching you next time.